Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here's a double shot from our featured artist today, Fathom Lane. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs. Okay, great. Reeling in the after, running from a new disaster. Hope nothing that you want, that you won't regret. up to see just what you get and Don't it burn like fire underwater Settle down Settle down Don't it burn like fire underwater Is it the one you want? 
strong enough for this load Cause we're built to take a rough road Will it go another mile just when you think it's gone? Will it be the one that first breaks Through the jealousy and heartbreak? Will it whisper all your secrets before moving on? And don't it burn like a fire underwater? Settle down, settle down Don't it burn like a fire
And that was Fathom Lane from their brand new release. And we got Michael on the line right now. Hey, Michael, how you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I came down with COVID a couple of days ago, but I'm hanging in there. So. Oh, good. I hope you're, you've been vaccinated and protected. Oh, yeah. All the vaccines, all the, all the normal protections. Just was, you know, trying to live life and yeah, <laughs> it yeah. caught up with me. You know, I had avoided it to this point. But other than that, I'm feeling good. Well, you know, I I didn't get, I I got a a small case of COVID uh, after my fourth vaccine. I'm up to six now. I'm up to six uh, vaccines, you know, uh, all together. So, yeah, give me, if you got something to stick me with, stick it. Just stick me with it. Yep, exactly. Let's put up as many defenses as possible. Yeah, I'm I'm good for it. Uh, Now, let's talk a little bit about you as an artist. Um, and we always start things off by giving our fans that opportunity to get to know who you are. And the best way to do it is through your story, your journey. So give us the story of Fathom Lane and, of course, you, Michael. Well, um, you know, I've been a, a, a record nerd all my life, or at least starting in like like when I was 10 and I bought Endless Summer by the Beach Boys. It was like, I think, the first record that I bought. Um, with my own money. So I've been obsessed with records and music forever. And I ended up getting a, a composition and performance degree um, in all things uh, saxophone. Um, and uh, after I graduated with that degree, I promptly didn't play the saxophone for about five or six years um, because uh, it just uh, had become an academic exercise for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, um, I had to be kind of reminded why I like to play music, which is, which is more of an accessible world. And so I got back into, um, writing songs and, um, playing guitar and singing, which is something I had done throughout, um, the end of junior high and high school with, with my buddies, you know, we had a couple bands, uh, growing up. Um, so I kind of got back into doing that, um, and uh, Fathom Lane was was the result of that, ultimately. Okay. Now, what is Fathom Lane as a name? Where did that come from? Well, I was driving through Anoka County, which is a, a county near where I live now, near the Twin Cities. And um, <laughs> I saw a sign um, that said Fathom Lane. And I thought, oh, man, that's uh, that's a cool name. I like that. Um, I saw like a, a street sign, um, and so I kind of always kind of filed it away. I think I wrote it, wrote down a note with the name. Um, but now you know what, Rich? I can't find that road on any map, so I don't know if I dreamed it, um, if it was some sort of you know divine you know, intervention, or maybe I read Phantom Lane and transposed it in my mind. I'm not sure what happened, but that was the original impetus. I just always had thought. Um, that that was, I liked the idea of Fathom Lane, something, you know, just sounded somewhat mysterious about it. And so we were recording that first record, uh, the record Down by Half in 2012. And it was, it was my project, but I didn't want to use my name on it. I think there's just so many artists out there who are performing in, under their own name. And, and I feel like I, I wanted to, to set it apart. And we had developed you know, a core group of musicians who had come together to record this material. And so 
um, one of the lines in a song of mine called Miles um, used the the um, reference to Fathom Lane. And so I um, threw that out to the band. Hey, what do you guys think of naming this thing Fathom Lane instead of going under Michael Ferrier? And they were like, oh, yeah, I like that. So it just kind of stuck. Um, and I'm really glad we did it that way. Um, it, it gives me some independence, too. I can, you know do another project with a different name if I want to like play German speed metal or something like that, you know? Okay. So I, I feel like, you know, I don't have to carry my name around with me as an artist. Um, so th- this, this project is called Fathom Lena and, and that's the long story on where it came from. Okay. Now, uh, you know, I, I look at musicians and, and I talk to a lot of them, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, they all seem to have that one crossroad moment in their lives where they had several career paths that were set in front of them and they chose music because it it just made sense to them. What was that crossroad moment for you where you knew music was something you needed to pursue? Um, It was way back. It was way back when I was a kid. And I didn't ever think that I could do it as a job, per se. Um, but I always thought like an artist. Um, and so I, I guess I decided early on um, that I was going to be some sort of artist. I wanted to create things. Um, so to me, it's, uh, you know, I told my parents when I went to college that I was going to be a math communications major, but then turned around and enrolled in all music classes and switched my <laughs> switched my major to music because that, aligned with where I really needed and wanted to go for my, for my soul. And so that's, that was kind of the, the decision was kind of made for me. I think um, my parents are not musicians and always wanted me to be practical about things. Bless their, bless their hearts. Um, but they also turned me on a, to a ton of great music because they had a fantastic record collection, a lot of jazz, a lot. And my dad was really into hi-fi jazz when he was in college and, so we shared all those, Dave Brubeck, Stan Getz, all, he just had a fantastic collection of records that sounded just so great to my ears. I ended up playing saxophone because of it, probably. So really, they they really facilitated my move into music without even trying to, just by sharing the things that they loved. So, you know, like I said, I, I feel like the choice was really made for me, and it it was kind of a crossroads moment when I decided to do that and kind of ditch the safe path and, and get a degree in music. Okay. Now, um, if you were to give someone the rundown on this release to get them excited about listening and checking it out, what would you tell them? Well, I'd tell them that these songs are, um, you know, all come from the heart. And they are all each their own kind of little world that you're going to go on a journey through the record. Um, each song, I think, stands on its own, but I think it also tells a story all the way through. And what that story is, I feel like the listener gets to decide. You know, my lyrics are not very specific. Um, I'm not saying, you know, I tripped over the curb today. I'm, I'm using something. Um, a little bit more open-ended, a little bit more. I'm trying to take a poetic approach. I, I know that sounds pretentious, but but I am really trying to be poetic with my approach to writing lyrics so that 
it can relate um the listener can really relate to the things that are brought up in the in the lyrics and in the music to their own lives okay now um let's talk about you as a songwriter because everything starts with a good song when you sit down to begin that process what is your mechanism that allows you to tap into your muse um, it really depends. Um, it's like usually it's. I'd, I'm not the kind of um, person who sets aside uh, two hours a day to write, um, although I probably should or could do something like that. Um, but I kind of wait for the inspiration to strike me. Um, and so a lot of times it will come out of, you know, events in my life that I'm sorting through um, and you know, that I put down on paper and set to music. Surviving is one of the, it's the second track on a record um, that was written at kind of the beginning of COVID relatively. It didn't feel like the beginning at the time, but it was about COVID and about that isolation I was feeling and about, you know, going through this traumatic event, which, um, it really was for all of us to be isolated and alone and away from other people and support systems and so forth. And so that song directly came out of that. And that song was one of those songs, and I wish that they were all like this, that I couldn't even catch up with the lyrics fast enough. You know, I, I just had to write so fast, you know, just kind of dumped out on paper. And within, I probably started the song um, at like 10 p.m., and I had a song by 11:30. Um, so it was it was a really fast process with that one. Now, not all of the all of the ones are that I've written are like that. Um, I away, which is another song on the on the new record. That song, I had the chord progression that I really liked, and I played that for months. I mean, months. It was painful because <laughs> I didn't have the words to go with it. And I, I um, came up with a line. Um, it's uh, your back loaded with a crooked smile. And I just thought, you know, I'm, t I'm talking to like the prodigal lover who went off. Um, and, and so just that line and getting that line, oh, then everything else tumbled over. And then I was able to write the lyrics probably over the next week. I pieced them together. So I have many, many processes. Um, you know, some of them are like a glass blower, you know, where you have to work on that 2000 degree piece of glass right now and finish it within the next few minutes. And then other ones are like being a painter where you're putting in different touches each day. Um, or sometimes you just stare at the canvas for a while and figure out how you're going to fill it up. Or you might have a framework or a grid and you need some time to figure out how you're going to fill that in and you do that over a period of months so i i'll really take a song however it comes but um for me it starts and and then sometimes i will you know have a lyric that i like and then i'll you know write a song around it so sometimes it starts with the lyrics for me sometimes it starts with the music it's really I'll, like i said <laughs> i'm easy i'll take a song however it comes so okay now um, a lot of songwriters have embraced some of this technology today as tools, whether it's the cell mm -hmm. phone to capture ideas or home recording studio. 
What are some of the tools you have found to be indispensable to you as a writer? Um, my phone, definitely. Uh, I sing ideas into my phone all the time, into my voice notes. I also will, you know, um, take a video of myself playing a new idea so that I can remember it. Because <laughs> my, my memory is not so great for those things. I'll have a great idea one night and then wake up the next morning, look at my guitar, and I can't even remember what the first note is, you know. So I'm, I've really embraced uh, throwing down ideas in videos um, that I just have on my phone. And it's fun because I'll have 10 of them in there that I haven't come back to. And so I'll go through and review them and say, okay, that one's crap. Oh, that one's good. Oh, that one's really good. You know, and, and figure out um, which ones I want to flesh out into full songs. Okay. Now, you know, I, I've been uh, watching some of the technology as they, it evolves today. And one of the big uh, uh, buzzwords is uh, AI. And mm -hmm. there was an article with uh, Ed Sheeran where he admitted that he had utilized AI uh, for some of his writing. And he used it more as an idea generator as opposed to, you know, uh, just taking it verbatim and utilizing it. Uh, what is your impression of AI uh, in the world of songwriting? Because, you know, you can get lyrics, you can get melodies and chords and even mm -hmm. orchestration from these AI generators. What do you think of that and its potential for the future of songwriting in the music industry? Well, I think it has huge potential. I, I It's not something that I have personally tapped into yet. I'm a, I'm a little leery. Um, I do appreciate the idea of songwriting prompts and having those randomly generated. Um, there's a, I use Oblique Strategies by Brian Eno all the time. And that's not an AI generator, but it's a, it's a stack of cards, basically, that you can use to inspire um, your next move creatively. And so, and that can often help me get out of a rut and help me think uh, a different way. If that's the way that Ed's using it, that's the way songwriters are using it. More power to them. I'm not in the pop music world. Um, I'm more in the, you know, personal singer-songwriter world. So I don't want artificial intelligence to affect my way of going about things. You know, but if it could write Instagram posts for me, well, bring it on, you know. Um, any of those kinds of things. Um, the things so that I can focus on being an artist, well, that's great. Um, I don't, you know, wish for the day when musicians are replaced by artificial intelligence. I don't even like the word artificial, you know. I want real intelligence. So I, I, um, I, I'm looking at it with a skeptical eye, but I'm also, you know, open to using it as a tool if I feel like I can apply it to what I'm doing and not have any of my artistic agency taken away. Okay. Now, uh, one of the big things I think, we're, especially for young songwriters, is knowing when to stop. When to, <laughs> yes. yeah, when to put the pen down, when to say, you know, enough is enough. When you get to that point um, where you need to move the song from the writing phase into the production phase, 
what is your quantifier? What do you use to determine when a song is ready to move from one phase to the next? Well, we happen to have our producer in the band, <laughs> so that really, really helps a lot. Um, Matt Patrick is a fantastic producer. He's also our guitarist, and he um, and the rest of the band really are sounding boards for me. Um, you know, if I can impress Matt, then we're good to go. You know, he's got very elevated taste. He's got, um, you know, he's also does not pull punches, you know, so, and, and everyone needs someone like that, you know, like when to stop. That's a really great question. I think it's all about who are you working with too? Who are those people? Who are the voices that you trust, um, to tell you, dude, move on, you know, or it's finished or, you know, this song really needs a bridge. Um, you know, you need those trusted um, co-conspirators, I'll call them, um, who are able to set you on the right path with the material. And luckily, I work with a tremendous group of people who um, take my ideas and they make them 25 times better by inputting their ideas onto it, too. So I'm always open. Um, you know, I will stick to my guns when I feel there's guns to be stuck to. But, um, but yeah, I'm also really welcoming of the kind of feedback that I get from my colleagues and compatriots. Okay. Now, um, let's talk about going into the studio because having a good song is, is about half the battle. The other half is creating its identity, its, its sound, its vibe. Uh, when you get in that environment, what is your process that helps you get the sound you're looking for? Well, I, I try to treat each song, um, like I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, as its own little world. Um, so each song gets its own treatment. Um, I don't want to necessarily apply the same brush or the same approach to every every song. So some of the songs we do um, are set up with a live band in the studio and we hack through the song, or I shouldn't say hack through it. We get some takes of the song and we go back and we work on it from there. Some of the songs start from absolute silence and we put down an acoustic guitar and we build around that, you know, and we do more tracking um, with that approach rather than having everyone playing together. Um, I like both approaches. I like a variety. Again, I really strive to give each song its own, its own life, its own personality, and um, you know, try to just get the best. Like, let the song speak to me first. Like, what is this song calling for, and then go from there. Okay. Now. Um of course, you know, uh, we got to talk about the lineup. Who's playing on it? So what is the lineup? Oh, sure. Well, it's myself um, singing, playing guitar, acoustic guitar. I think I played some percussion on this one, too. Um, and then Matt Patrick, as I mentioned before, plays electric guitars. and But he plays <laughs> so many instruments. Um, he's kind of the, the guy who um, will put, um, you know, clavinet on a track if it needs it. Or... Um, an extra symbol on it if it needs it. Um, he can he can do it all. Um, he's a great keyboard player, bassist, great uh, great guitarist. Um, so that's Matt Patrick. He also produces co-produces the records with me. 
And then um, Ashley Still is the other singer in the group. Um, some people would call it the girl singer. <laughs> but um, I strive to, <clears throat> excuse me, have kind of an equal voice with her, if possible, when, you know, she's not just a background singer. It's like the two of us um, have kind of an equal say in the mix. And she also plays keyboards for us, piano um, and electric keyboards. And then there's uh, Paul Boblet playing bass. Um, and he's he's a fantastic bass player. Also, just the absolute greatest guy in the world. Um, Alex Young plays the drums. And um, he, again, is so sensitive and pushes the songs and directions that I didn't initially realize they could go in. And so that's always, that's one of the things I love about going in the studio is introducing these songs to these people and seeing where they can take them. And he's one of those, those guys who can just take your songs and just make them into something absolutely stunning. Um, and then on this record also, he's not a full-time member, at least not in our live band is, uh, Shane Akers plays the lap steel and that he kind of brings our, he kind of, the, the, the lap steel really kind of yanks on your heartstrings. Um, so he's, he's kind of the, the secret weapon of the group. Um, and uh, just a fantastic lap steel player. Okay. Now, uh, of course, once you get it recorded, you got to get it out to press and to the radio, and you're working with Krista Velenkis of uh, Elephants and Flowers Media. Tell me about that relationship. Well, we actually go back a ways when she was with her previous company. She's a fantastic individual. She has just such great energy and ideas. Um, she's put me in touch with a lot of people who can kind of help me out and help me navigate the the music industry as it stands now. Uh, we haven't put out we haven't put out a record for six years, and <laughs> as you know, the music landscape has changed so much in six years. So I really needed to tap into her knowledge and the knowledge of some of the people she has referred me to uh, to really get us back on the map um, because we were quiet um, for for a while, at least in releasing full-length records. We did release some singles, but I did all the promotion on those myself because I still had the same relationships and so forth that I built up for my records. But this time around, everything is different. They keep moving the goalposts, um, you know, also, the, a lot of the personnel has changed at the institutions that I was working with before, and she knows the people who are working there now. She's, um, you know, just a great ray of energy um, and very inspiring. She gave me, <laughs> I have, uh, like, two notes of homework. After our initial meeting uh, about this project, I had two notes of just homework that she gave me to do, you know, and it was the best because I really got everything up to snuff and ready to go. Cool. Okay. Now, um, let's talk about the industry. Um, like I said, in six years, things have changed dramatically. Um, yes. You know, and, you know, the elephant, not to coin a pun here, in the room is the fact that the consumer has embraced streaming as a way to consume music. You know, we're, we're not going backwards. We're not going to a point where, you know, uh, there's going to be a product again. Um, you know, uh, you, vinyl is not going to save us. 
Uh, the only reason vinyl sales are outselling CDs now is because nobody's buying CDs. Um, yes. And the reason they don't buy CDs is because you can't get a CD player. Uh, they don't make them <laughs> yeah, in cars. True. They don't put them in computers. They don't even, you know, you can't even go to Best Buy and get a CD player anymore. You got to go to Goodwill and find one in a thrift store. Uh, yep. Once the hardware is gone, the software is pretty much right behind it. Um, Toasty, yes. Yes. So, you know, we have to deal with this reality that we're in today. The problem that I'm seeing is is that recorded music has lost that status of product. It's no longer something to purchase anymore. It's now a service. Uh, and, yes. you know, you got to look at it from the consumer's point of view. I mean, for 10, 15 bucks a month, you have access to pretty much everything that's been recorded in the last hundred years, plus the 20,000 plus songs that are uploaded every week. Um, and it's just, you know, it's a no brainer for the consumer. Unfortunately, yeah. it's hurt the independent artist because, you know, let's face it, we all depend on that merch table to make any tour, you know, an economic uh, success. And without that, you know, recorded music as a sale item, it really eats into it. Uh, the other is, is that if you're not on Spotify, because of the amount of music that is being, you know, propagated on a daily basis, if you're not there and they search for you, you become irrelevant and they just move on. So you're in that Indeed. case 22. How has this shift in perception by the consumer uh, affected you as an artist? Well, it's confused me. Let's put it that way. Um, it's it's really difficult as an artist um, because you want to make something that's sustainable so that you can make enough money on your music that you can make more music. Um, and that... <laughs> has become increasingly difficult. And I, I appreciate what you say um, when you say that artists need to be on Spotify. And it's true. I'm on all the, all the streaming platforms. And um, I refer to it, you can, steal, you can steal from us on all the platforms. <laughs> um, because they really have commoditized um, the actual music, the actual art. And let's face it, it's less than a commodity even. It's it's more just um, like people feel like it's a right. Um, and while I appreciate that, and I, I use the streaming services all the time, um, when I'm checking out somebody new, I still spend a lot of money, however, on 3D music, I'll call it physical music, records, not not so much CDs anymore, unless I unless it's not out in any of their format. I have a CD player. Um, I don't use it very much. I use my turntable all the time. So I'm I'm either spending records or streaming, admittedly, but I also pay the top subscription rate for those services. And I, I feel like more people need to not just use the free service with the ads or so forth. They need to pony up and they need to pay that subscription service. I think the streaming services need to make it harder um, to steal from artists because that's really what I feel like it is um, because it's uh, 
um, you know, the, the artist is not really is, is seeing point zero 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 six cents for one stream on Spotify, which is absolutely that's like <laughs> that's laughable. Um, but people have been talking about this for years now, and it hasn't changed. In fact, Spotify is you know keeps moving the goalposts on how to actually try to make money on their on their platforms, and so that's why I've hired consult a consultant to help me navigate and to help put us back on the map in the streaming services because promoters, bookers, all the people who are looking at you as an artist, what do they do? The first thing they do, they go on Spotify. They see how many monthly listeners you have, how many streams your top songs have. And so they're out there looking at it. So I still have to service that, you know, so people are making money. There's people making money on the streaming services, but it's not the artists, the people who are responsible for the reason why the streaming services exist. And I know there was legislation a few years ago where they've talked about sunsetting the the grace period on the royalty rates that um, Spotify and other streaming services pay artists. And so I hope that that, and I, and I forget what the details are, but I'm hoping that over time, and as it becomes more prevalent um, and pe more people subscribe to the full service rather than just kind of leeching off of it, I'm hoping that eventually the royalty rates get normalized. So if I don't make any money on my music while I'm alive, I'm streaming fine. Um, I've kind of resigned myself to that fact, but I'd like for my kids to. You know, I'd like for there to be some sort of footprint in the streaming world so that... Um, someday, you know, the money can come through for the streams that I'm getting. Well, you know, and I agree. I mean, I mean, the amount of money that's being generated for the independent artists in particular through the streaming services is not a sustainable business model. Um, no. You cannot continue to ask artists to create content. And let's face it, the bulk of their content is really coming from the indie market as opposed to the major labels. I mean, they may make up the majority of the streams and the revenue, but they don't make up the majority of the content. Um, and you can't continue to ask artists to go into studios and, and spend money on, on promoters and PR. Exactly. It's costly. I mean, I spend a lot of money to make these records because I want them to sound really good. You know, I want them to sound as good as they possibly can, and they do. You know, they sound great on the radio. You know, they, they stand up right next to any of the major label artists um, when they're played on the radio. You know, and so, and, and I take pride in that. And, and, I, and so, you know, it's not like, you know, there's a major, there's not the, a label behind me, like, paying for my studio time, paying the musicians to come in to play. I have to lay that out. I have to lay that money out myself. You know, and I, I have never done a Kickstarter. You know, I, I've always just, like, felt like I can only focus on, you know, making great art, you know. And so that's why I've, you know, and I feel like doing a Kickstarter is almost like a job, you know. And I just so far have not done that. And I don't disparage anyone for doing Kickstarters. I'm proud of them. I, I contributed. I contribute to them myself because I want to see artists be successful. Um, but it was, it's been my choice thus far to never do a Kickstarter. 
but there is a there is a cost involved, an upfront cost to getting these records made and manufactured. It's expensive to make vinyl. It's expensive to make, even to buy the rights to the covers that I put on the records. Um, you know, because I cover songs from other artists, and I don't I don't try to get around paying them licensing fees. You know, so if you do it the right way, it's going to cost you some money up front. And I just want the artists to get some sort of you know reward for the work and the money that they put in. And I agree. Now, if you look at the digital revolution, it it really promises that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, we started out with the digital revolution. We started out with LimeWire and Napster, where everyone was just stealing music left and right, and you know, and file sharing and so on and so forth. And everyone was screaming that you know, hey, we'll never get rid of these because. You know, it's the internet and they can't stop us, yada, yada, yada. And along comes Apple and they say, hey, we got this thing called an iPod, but if you want to put music on it, you have to use iTunes and it's 99 cents a song. Not bad. Everyone jumped on that bandwagon and everyone screamed, oh, Apple's in the music business game. We'll never get rid of Apple. They're going to be here and they're going to dominate the industry. Well, who the hell's got an iPod now? I mean, we all mm-hmm. may have one in the drawer somewhere, just sitting there dead as a doornail. But nobody's using them anymore. Nobody wants to store things on a, on a device, you know, because along comes Spotify. And, you know, of course, everyone's screaming, oh, we'll never get rid of Spotify. They dominate the industry. Well, that's not the history of the digital mm-hmm. revolution. The digital revolution is just littered with companies that have gone by the wayside because they didn't adapt to the changing technology. Now, there is some technology that is coming up that could change how we look at the music industry. One of the big problems that I'm seeing in the industry as a whole, and it has been since its inception, more or less, is that every time a songwriter writes a song, there is a line of people waiting to take a piece of that pie. Whether it's an aggregator, a record company, a publisher, a a distributor, whatever it may be. There's just a whole line of people that just want a piece of the action. And we need to trim that down. Uh, Billboard magazine did an article where they said of the billions of dollars that's generated by the music industry, only 12% gets to the artist, which is a terrible statistic. And it's even less when you look at the independent artist. So it needs to change. Now, there is this new technology that um, is creating these new streaming services that are based on the blockchain, which is this technology, this software technology that cryptocurrency is based off of. And the way this, this works is that it is decentralized. In other words... Nobody can own it. It's impossible to own the blockchain or own anything on the blockchain. Uh, And no one person can be in control of it. These streaming services are owned by the fans and by the artists who put their content up. And they're the ones who run this. And they claim that they can pay up to 80% of the incoming revenue back to the artist. So you cut out. Sign me up. 
I mean, um, Audius is, is actually functioning right now. You can get an Audius player on your phone. Um, okay. It's backed by Jason Derillo, Katy Perry, Nas, Pusha T, a lot of the EDM artists. Um, I put my Sweet. podcasts up there. It's free. You don't co- doesn't cost you a dime to put your your stuff up, and um, it's it's now it's it's happening right now. Um, in addition, now we we got the streaming services thing, and we take away the um, the ownership of streaming from companies or people and we move them on now we got to deal with these record companies now how does an artist finance themselves how do they engage their fans well there's this other site called royal.io now what they let you do and this is also based on this blockchain is they let you create these non-fungible tokens, these NFTs, that represent a small portion of your streaming royalties or your publishing royalties, whatever it is you want. Uh, And one of the rap artists did this. His name is Nas. And he made enough of these NFTs to cover one half of the streaming royalties on two songs on his last release. He sold it to his fan base, these NFTs, and was able to generate almost $600,000 of front income. Go Nas, love him. Yeah, and in addition, he now has 3,000 fans that have an economic interest in making sure his music is streamed, because they're getting paid. Okay? Got it. Well, I'm going to have to look into this, Rich. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm writing this stuff down. <laughs> yeah, it's some some wild stuff going on out there. Um, and and you know, if you think about it, if this was available back when the Beatles started or, or Bruce Springsteen, and you had, you know, bought NFTs in the publishing of Let It Be or Born to Run or you know any of those songs. We'd be sitting pretty right now. It's almost like yes. for independent artists putting out penny stock in a song where your fans can get a vested interest. And to it's like what Bowie did. He's he's been such a visionary. It's like when he basically made himself a, a, a you know did a public offering of his of him. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and to top it off. These NFTs get bought and sold on an open market. So after you buy it, you can resell it again. But the artist who initially sold it to you gets a commission on every resale for the life of that NFT. Interesting. So it is a constant revenue generator as it goes through the futures, as it, as it goes through its lifespan. Uh, nice. So it's an interesting new business model for the music industry. Do you think that that might possibly change things to the better for us? Well, I think so. And, and um, you know, I'll have to look into it um, before I could really comment on it. But as you've described it, I think that sounds like something something that's more in the control of the artists is what we're all looking for, rather than kowtowing to the corporations and just kind of bowing to their power and their footprint, you know. So, 
any way that we can somehow bust out of that mold, I, I welcome. So I'll, I'll definitely be looking into that, Rich. Okay. Well, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's uh, been a real pleasure talking with you. And uh, we'll oh, it's been great to talk to you, Richard. Thanks for taking an interest, and thanks, um, thanks for your thoughtful questions. Uh, and, oh, no um, problem. And uh, we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from your new release. You guys are going to love this. You know what? Turn it up loud. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun. Yeah. What could all of these arms If they ain't holding you tonight And how thirsty my eyes Without drinking your eyes
Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Make you shout now, honey. Gonna make. 